We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, Culture Editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're very happy to be joined by Daniela Greenbaum Davis, who is an Emmy Award winning producer and writer. Daniela, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. I could not not have you on after you wrote the fantastic, maybe the best takedown of the new Sex in the City reboot. It's called And Just Like That. People have probably heard about it or seen the memes because of the Peloton situation. I imagine that it'll be basically impossible for us to avoid spoilers, especially to that end. So if, you, if you're if you not looking to be spoiled, you might want to tune out for this episode. Um, but I hope everybody does stay tuned in because the arc of Sex in the City, I think, represents a lot about the arc of our culture. Um, and Danielle, I'll just start off by asking you to tell us what you wrote, what your take was on And Just Like That. The headline of your story is, And Just Like That proves it's time to put Sex in the City to bed. What should have been a sexy, frothy, sparkly Sex in the City reunion in the recent miniseries was anything but. Tell us about the piece. Sure. So I'll just start off by saying that I am a total Sex and the City super fan and watched the show, you know, more times than I'd care to admit, watched both movies more times than I'd care to admit, and even really loved The Carrie Diaries, which was this very silly one dimensional sort of look back into what Carrie's origin story might have been. Um, so when some of the, the other ladies over at The Federalist said, you know, do you want to review this for us? I was like, this is amazing. Of course, I want to review this. Like, what would be better than, you know, getting paid to watch Sex in the City? And oh my God, was that a terrible decision on my part? Because the show was so bad, so terrible, so traumatic and upsetting and disappointing. I was dumbfounded. It was the same characters, but it was all wrong. It was like a cheap knockoff. And I just, it did not do Carrie justice. So that's interesting, because when you say a cheap knockoff, did it feel like it was of a different universe from the original Sex and the City and even from the Carrie Diaries? It's so interesting to me. I've heard the same thing from other people that they loved the Carrie Diaries, but this one just was totally terrible. Did it feel like a different show almost? It felt like a completely different show because I think, you know, what was great about Sex and the City was that it was it was wild. It was completely inappropriate. It was it wasn't what you were watching, you know, with your family. It was something that it was, it was escapist. And and that's why it was great. I mean, it's not like people were sort of saying to their kids, oh, these women are like, you know, great moral examples and we should all be exactly like them. No, nobody was watching it thinking like, wow, I'm learning life's lessons from this show. It was outrageous and it was inappropriate and it was escapist and it was fun. And that was the point. And so the idea that you would take a show like that, which by its very nature, its very title is predicated on being inappropriate. (laughs) And then you would decide to just like squish in every single kind of woke instruction manual that you can and expect viewers who loved the original to be like, we have, of course, I want to spend, you know, whatever amount of time I have a week on leisure watching. Oh, no, I actually want to be like forcibly educated on what I'm already not allowed to say. 
is just completely asinine. I just, I cannot understand who greenlit this project. That's one of the most baffling things always is that people do greenlight it. It goes through layers of bureaucracy, corporate bureaucracy, editorial control, and people say, yes, this is a great idea. This is the best version of Sex in the City we can do right now. Can you tell us a little bit about how they folded the sort of wokeness into the show? Well, from what I've heard, I love listening to my like non-political friends, and I'm just going to read a text from one of mine. She said, I love the original ladies, but the storylines revolve around cultural political correctness instead of just quietly layering in you know, the political correctness or the politics of all of it. How did they go about the sort of the forced messaging? Yeah, so I'll, I'll say a couple of things. First of all, I read a review in the Times, which was really interesting. My criticism of the piece was that I was too woke, right? A lot of the criticism that I saw from the left and that I saw in the Times was that the show didn't even get being woke right. <laughs> um, and I actually think there's something really to that. So I obviously would have preferred there to be, you know, zero woke in the show. I just think in general entertainment that tries to become, you know, politically correct and woke, it, it just turns people off and it's not what people want. It's certainly not what I want. Um, and that's why I think, by the way, for all of the talk about how great succession is, Yellowstone has way more of a loyal fan base. And um, J-Pod actually had a great piece on this and the New York Post just about how if you would look at Twitter and, and think about like what allegedly the best shows are and the most watched shows, you would have a completely warped view of reality because at the end of the day, the viewers are really watching these other programs. But I digress. <laughs> what I wanted to say about the woke thing is as follows. So what the show did, I think, terribly is they kind of added in these new characters. So you had Miranda's professor at law school and you had this um, podcast host um, who Gary works with and a couple of others. Um, and you know, one is this non-binary, um, podcast host who's just very focused on like describing Carrie as a cisgender woman. And the, you know, the other person is a cisgender male and it, they have basically no qualifications or descriptors other than that. Um, and then there's Miranda's professor who's just basically calling Miranda out on every single possible microaggression that she could make. Mm. And at the end of the day, What's really weird is those characters have absolutely no development. They're totally flat. So they are just there to be these woke signifiers. They, and it's actually so warped because it's like the show is using this person who's non-binary and is using this black woman to just satisfy their woke quota, but they don't actually do any of the work giving them their own backstory, their own character development, their own you know, multidimensionalness at all. So it, it was just I mean, to me, it was like a complete and utter disaster. That is a really interesting point because I think that's what happens so often when they sort of check the boxes for the sake of, uh, well, checking the boxes, it gets into like, they, they write terrible scripts and they make yeah. terrible art because they're just going through the, the motions of sort of satisfying this audience that, and I'm curious for your perspective on this particularly, this is they're catering to an audience that I don't think is real. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I obviously there is an audience that wants to see this kind of stuff. There's an audience for anything. I mean, you can have, you know, a million followers today on Instagram for popping pimples. So <laughs> I think there's there's an audience for everything. Um, but I think the idea that, you know, being woke and being politically correct and squeezing in these, you know, very short lived cultural references are going to earn you either new viewers or satisfy, um, you know, like a wide majority of your 
you know, traditional viewers is completely misguided. And I think that's clear based on what the response has been to the show. I mean, I have not seen a single positive review. I've seen many that are, you know, less, um, I would say, obnoxiously hateful than mine was. <laughs> but I haven't seen any that were like, wow, this is great. And aren't you excited to watch it? And then that's not just about the woke. It's also about their decision to just completely abandon everything the show stood for. I mean, the original Sex and the City was hilarious. It was a comedy. There was nothing funny about this between like tiptoeing into whether Miranda has a drinking problem or not. And Carrie being a widow, it was like, let's just hit you over the head with all of real life's problems. Oh yeah. That, that should be really fun to watch. Does it have something to do? And this is a broader question, sort of when the show originally aired in the nineties, the country felt very different. There was just a different atmosphere. Dot-com bubble hadn't totally burst and things were going really well in the country. Do you think there's sort of a parallel, or not a parallel, but do you think there's something that sort of seeps into, uh, from our just our broader cultural climate that seeps, and maybe in this case seeped into the series? Does that have anything to do with it? Yeah, I mean, look, I think in general, when you're doing something that has a shelf life and and most things worth doing in entertainment do have somewhat of a shelf life, um, you have to ask yourself, who is this resonating with? And Sex and the City, the original, definitely had a shelf life in the sense that, you know, it was it was talking to people of that moment. But at least it was successfully talking to people of that moment. Hmm. This reboot, it was trying to talk to people in this cultural moment, but it just utterly failed because the people who really wanted to see woke plot lines say, look, you didn't do a good job because you didn't make these people characters that were meaningful. You didn't actually do anything with them. You just had them as, you know, these sort of talking props, which is true. Um, and for people who I think, you know, are normal and are watching TV to be entertained, it's like, why are you including any of this at all? So it's not that I think TV doesn't need to speak to the cultural moment. It does, but it just feels like they didn't do it well at all. I mean, they really had two choices, right? They could have they could have dived in really deep and actually built a background around these characters and said, yeah, we're going to be woke in the true sense of the word. We're going to incorporate these characters, but we're going to do it in an honorable way that makes sense and doesn't feel like we're just, you know, scattering them into the plot. Or they could have said, we're going to continue on with the original characters. And so maybe the only way to reference wokeism at all, if we're going to tip our hat to this cultural moment, is to make fun of it. And since they're a comedy, they could have done that really well. And there are moments where you see they tried to. There's this scene where um, Miranda's black law professor is not being let into the library because she doesn't have her ID. And the security guard is like, I'm really sorry, ma'am, but like I need to see everyone's ID. And Miranda swoops in and is like, this is ridiculous. Let this woman in. And watching it, you're just rolling your eyes because, I mean, I've personally forgotten my ID many times, having gotten to Butler Library in Columbia, where I think that was supposed to be. And no, they don't let you in. Like, you need your ID. That's just protocol. That's not racial. That's just the rule. And the professor says to Miranda, don't be a white savior. Like mm -hmm. it was fine. Nothing was wrong here. I needed my ID. And so I think you had opportunities where you could have had comedic elements. Like here's this middle-aged privileged white woke lady 
who is trying to be super woke. And here's this like reasonable black professor who's actually like, all right, relax. Mm -hmm. You could have had moments of comedy and levity there, but instead everything was just heavy and serious. And I think that speaks to sort of the one dimensionality of the sort of corporate wokeness just in general, in that they didn't have that, the the muscle to sort of do that more substantively and to do that more artfully to incorporate it because to them in so many cases, it's sort of an inch deep. It's, it's a mile wide and an inch deep. They'll cover all of the bases, but they won't do them well because it's not necessarily something they fundamentally like really deeply morally agree with. And I'm curious for your take on how sex in the city, like you've already said something so important, which is that it was predicated on being politically incorrect. It was predicated on being taboo. And there's nothing necessarily taboo about the the behavior that was in the original sex in the city. It's it actually paved the way for seeing a lot of that normalized in, totally. in the culture. Um, so what, where does that leave them in 2021? Do you think some of these women would still be like, let's say hypothetically, they were they nailed the characters and got it all right? Do you think they would be sort of grappling with you know they're in manhattan how do you think they would be grappling with you know 2020 and beyond um th- this era of political correctness or wokeness or whatever you know anybody wants to call it how would they be well, handling it well that's the thing just going back to your box checking for a second so if if i'm you know the writer producer whatever of of the reboot and in my head i am actually fully dedicated to woke culture and I really want to use my platform to do something good for this for this ideology that I believe in. Recognizing that I have just a couple of episodes and that in general, I'm bringing back a reboot with characters that people love and that people want to see their old characters back. I wouldn't try to reach into every single archetype of woke culture. I would pick one issue. And I think one of the big problems with the reboot, in excuse me, particularly when it comes to this woke issue is... They just tried to do everything. So if you really wanted to talk about the whole non-binary world and you wanted to talk about pronouns and you wanted to talk about normalizing that community, then then that should be the addition to the show. If you want to talk about racial inequality, then that's your addition to the show. But they just tried to do everything and they tried to do it in the first episode of a reboot that people were watching because they wanted to see their old characters Hmm. i don't even think they gave themselves a chance to grapple with issues in the real sense Mm -hmm. and i think just picking up on one thing you said that i think is so important the people in the room by and large that are making the decision to let's say incorporate you know a woke character here and, and a new plot line there that nods to this ideology they care about These are people that have proven themselves over and over again to not actually care about these issues. And I want to stress that because again, yeah, we see it in the content, right? Because if they cared, these people wouldn't be flat one-dimensional characters that are popping in for the purpose of just saying, hey, we're woke. If they really cared, they would have their own plot lines. But it's the same thing that we see, you know, at major corporations that are supporting legislation on paid family leave. And then you see they don't actually do paid family leave within their own ranks. Or, you know, it's the super, super wealthy woke liberals who are talking about how we need to tax the rich more, but then they're spending millions of dollars with their own lawyers ensuring that they find tax loopholes. 
there just seems to be a massive gap between what people are talking about that they care about and actually sort of putting the time, effort, and money where their mouth is. Right. And that lack of, it's just so incoherent. So the lack of coherence, I think, is what ends up playing out. And, and exactly as you describe it in this piece, it does seem as though whatever ideology they're using to frame and uh, and just like that is pretty incoherent in the sense that they sort of want to criticize the white savior, but then they also want to pretend that their white saviors are, <laughs> you know, entirely redeemable and yeah. on the right on the right side of history, as some people would say. Actually, that reminds me, you're very outspoken on the issue of anti-Semitism on the left um, and on the right, of course, too. But you call it out a lot, and that seems to me to be a similar example in that there's all of this moral posturing and preening about hatred and bigotry. Um, from, you know, the squad and people on the far left, but the hatred and bigotry of, you know, people who are anti-Semitic, it seems to get a pass. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of sort of um, things that don't line up and there's a lot of things that are hypocritical. But I also think one thing that really bothered me about the show is, you know, all of the original reviews about um, not the reviews, but sort of the pre-reviews saying why we need and just like that and how great it's going to be talked about how straight and white and, you know, non-diverse the original Sex in the City was. Now, you know, Stanford Blatch was a major, major character. I would not say that the show was straight. I also wouldn't say that the show was so tight-laced. It talked about normalizing um, polygamy and, and just, you know, non-monogamous relationships well before we saw that entering the mainstream. I mean, that was like literally season one. You saw conversations in Sex and the City about whether there's such thing as ethical cheating. I mean, we're talking about like pretty mm. progressive conversations for the time. And so I personally just, I cannot stand this idea that we're going to judge things, you know, from 10, 20, 100, whatever it is years ago, based on the standards that exist today. And I think we actually do the show a disservice because in a lot of ways, it was out there on a limb for its time. Um, and I just feel like ignoring that, it, it doesn't do anyone any favors. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting perspective. Um, and I'm really curious also about what the show... So Sex and the City to me is the one that just sort of... That came right before I was coming of age. I'm a, I'm a little young to have felt the cultural impact immediately. I think uh, young women, as, as young as teenagers today, feel the cultural impact of the show. Totally. What, what was it that like really appealed to you when it was on originally? Was it this idea that they were talking about things that were taboo and that were sort of intellectually stimulating and they were doing it in a very accessible, relatable way what what did you honestly love about the show? Honestly, none of that. I just love that it was funny. I, love <laughs> I, I that like it, that answer. I love that it was entertaining. And I think, you know, we keep seeing the same mistake where content that people are watching for the entertainment value, whether it's The Bachelor, whether it's Survivor this season. I mean, oh my God, I don't know if you're a fan, but every single episode of Survivor, the host. Jeff Probst says, come on in, guys. And it's mm -hmm. him inviting everybody into the challenge. And this season, there was not one, but two conversations about whether the phrase, come on in, guys, is, you know, unfair and discriminatory and should be put to bed. And it's just, I think especially now when increasingly you can't say what you're thinking at work, you can't say what you're thinking socially, certainly not if you live in certain major cities in this country. 
people do not want to watch these shows to be hit over the head again with what they can't say and what they should be thinking and this like programmatic, like let's just control your your mind and your thoughts. And so the idea that people will want to watch reality TV again, whether it's The Bachelor or Survivor or it's a comedy like Sex and the City and just have that hit them over the heads rather than just be entertained. I think it's a really big miscalculation on, on the part of people who are producing this content. In the 1960s, as war raged in Vietnam, Americans were shocked to learn of documents leaked from the Pentagon that made them question their government's entire involvement in the conflict. The new season of Wondery's podcast, American Scandal, explores the Pentagon Papers, those highly controversial leaked documents that led Americans to demand an end to the catastrophic war. In the 60s, Daniel Ellsberg was a young government official who discovered that U.S. leaders were secretly escalating a war they knew could not be won. Sound familiar? As a result, thousands of men were drafted each year only to be senselessly killed. Once Ellsberg recognized this terrible truth, he made the bold decision to leak the documents now known as the Pentagon Papers, even if the consequences would land him behind bars for life. It's a story about self-sacrifice and justice, but it's also the story of Ellsberg's transformation from government operative to anti-war whistleblower and how his actions altered the course of American history. Listen to American Scandal, The Pentagon Papers on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen one week early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Are your thoughts running in endless circles in your mind? I know that I have been there. So with the stresses of this last year, it's more important than ever to practice living healthier and happier lives. So what if a few minutes was all it took to change your relationship with stress and anxiety, transforming your life for the better? That's the power of meditation with Headspace. Our thoughts can be confusing enough. Meditation doesn't have to be. Headspace is your convenient dose of meditation, mindfulness, and sleep exercises to relieve stress and anxiety and help you get a good night's sleep all in one app, making it easy to catch your breath and make time for your mental health. And it's one of the most science-backed meditation apps in the world, proving meditation works. A study proves in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. You're going to love their SOS mini meditations, for example, that just give you a quick breather. They relieve stresses and bring you a moment of peace amongst all of the daily chaos. Find some Headspace at headspace.com slash federalist and get one month free of their entire meditation library. This is the best Headspace offer available. So go to headspace.com slash federalist today. Headspace.com slash federalist. Yeah, it's interesting because I think it's both a miscalculation and a willful kind of miscalculation in that they're sort of willing to lose particular viewers um, for the sake of satisfying others and for sort of being able to show their faces at these award ceremonies that they're constantly giving, uh, you know, awards to producers in Hollywood and writers in Hollywood and all that good stuff. I, I will say, though, I also think those decisions are why we have seen this massive um, decentralization and just sort of like Wild West mentality take over both media and entertainment in which, you know, private media companies, really small boutique production companies, um, you know, like a Substack on the media side um, can, can create content that's actually seen and appreciated both on the entertainment and the news media side. 
by many more eyeballs than some of these sort of like giant dinosaurs because they're really catering to something different. They're, they're worried about stock prices and bottom lines and how they have to cater to the people that are reporting on them. And so they're focused on what the perception is and how can we be woke enough to get into this room? And, and it, it, it's just, it's not about the viewer anymore. Yeah, I don't think you could possibly be more correct about that. I was on the set of the new, and I've talked about this on the podcast a couple of times. So I went to the set of the new Daily Wire movie that they're working on with Gina Carano, and mm-hmm. so many people there were from the industry. Um, really? People on the crew who just had had enough, not even like conservatives on the crew, but people who just wanted to do something anti-woke. And I can't, it's interesting because like when I go back and watch episodes of Sex in the City, there is something and you can sort of feel it really exciting about what they're talking about and when they're talking about it and that they're sort of bringing the women's phone conversations and um, bar conversations into the public in a way that men probably had representation of many times on television before but what they were doing there's just something really exciting about that and that's something you can't really capture anymore it seems like that you can't capture something taboo because the risks i think financially and in terms of public relations are it just doesn't make sense for in in this industry where streaming is cutting everything up and you know everything is so you have to walk such a tightrope it doesn't make sense for anybody to take risks anymore but sex in the city always seems to me that there it was a risk and that was part of what made it exciting for people to watch yeah, I mean, again, it, it was called Sex and the City. It wasn't appropriate. It wasn't supposed to be appropriate. And, and it was never pretending to sort of give you these great moral examples. And that was okay. It was showing you, you know, you could also have fun and you could aspire to something maybe a little naughty. And that was okay. And it became this like, just pearl clutching, squeaky, moralistic, like politically correct, evangelizing nightmare. And, and, you know, add on top of the woke stuff, killing off big, making yes. it a tragedy, turning the show from fun and funny and slutty to, oh, I'm a widow. Mm. Like, again, these are these are real things that people go through, but I don't want to watch them in a comedy that is supposed to be frothy and delicious and, and fun and light. And it's like. You know, you turn, you enter into a room or you come to dinner and you've been told you're getting, you know, prime rib and suddenly you're served Wacky Mac. Wacky Mac's great, but it's just not what I ordered. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Frothy is such a good word for the, I I guess, the ideal and what it was at its height. Um, That's a really good way to describe it. But there isn't any frothy entertainment anymore. And if you watch so many movies that are churned out, that are billed as comedies or romantic comedies, they always have something like what you're talking about with this turn um, in regard to Big in this reboot. It's always like there has to be somebody dying. There has to be some sort of tragedy, some sort of dark moment where there's a lesson learned. And that's fine on its own. But it's like we cannot have anything lighthearted anymore. And everything is just so heavy. Yeah. I also think like, so I happen to love Shonda Rhimes and I loved Grey's Anatomy and I loved Bridgerton. Mm. Um, and I think just, you know, going back to the woke piece, if the show wanted to do something in a meaningful way, they could have took a page out of Bridgerton where, you know, half the cast is black and, and it's like obviously a total twist on the Julia Quinn novels where there was no piece about, you know, like black Royal society. That's something like Shonda added. Um, but it's just normal. It's just part of the plot. It's not like, let me have these random, completely unrelated to our plot elements, um, you know, interspersed into the dialogue to just show you how woke I am. 
Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, I think there's a couple of layers here, but one is that, you know, other than Shonda Rhimes, it doesn't even seem like you have production talent that has sort of given real thought to how to do this in a seamless way. Yep. So it's not just that they want to hit you over the head with woke lessons. It's that they're not even doing it in a way that feels seamless with the content. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the viewer experience is just like to be sort of glaringly reminded over and over again about, you know, you're being educated and you're being given this like teaspoon of medicine with all the sugar. And you're like, no, I just, I just want the sugar. I don't want this. I think that's a really good point. Um, and a, a really good point also just because there's, yeah, I mean, that's a good way to think about what is churned out, I think, in Hollywood is that they're constantly trying to serve it up with something that nobody's asking for. And part of that gets to what you were talking about in the beginning, where the, and this is where I was going next, where you see the chattering class chattering ad nauseum about succession. And basically nobody talking about Yellowstone, despite one being massively popular, actually historically popular. Uh, Are you a Yellowstone fan, by the way? Oh my God, I am obsessed. Okay, so why do you like Yellowstone? Tell me, like, it's just entertaining. It just so, damn okay, good I'll, I'll be super honest. So I was working at The View. Yes. And I was working with Megan, Megan McCain, and I asked her for a TV rack. And she was like, you need to watch Yellowstone. I'm obsessed with Yellowstone, 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 Yellowstone. <laughs> and I was like, what's it about? And she was like, it's basically Cowboys. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to watch that. Like anything else. Yes. She was like, I'm telling you, you need to watch Yellowstone. So I literally went home and watched the entire first season in like two days and just like gobbled it up. And obviously now, you know, I'm up to date. First of all, anything with Kevin Costner, like, I mean, the man is just like walking sex. So (laughs) yeah, that's first. But I love it because first of all, it feels completely foreign to my life, right? I live, right? Like it's completely escapist. Like I live in New York City. I don't think I've ever been on a ranch, like (laughs) could not be more foreign to me. And it's great because you could just get completely absorbed into their world. But second of all, like I just... Look, most things that you watch on TV at the end of the day, they are cosmopolitan in nature. Things happen in L.A., they happen in New York, they happen in Europe. They they don't happen on a ranch. And for me, watching it, it's just like, okay, this is another swath of the American heartland that I don't see represented a lot. Mm. And that, frankly, I think gets really, really caricatured in the media And it's nice to see them be real people with real emotions and real layers. And it's just good. I mean, it's just good quality TV. Right. And it's not bogged down by posturing. And I think that's what gets to everything you've been talking about is like, why is this not entertaining? Because all of these social conversations and cultural conversations can be entertaining, even if they're, you know, excessively from the left, they can be entertaining. But when you're wrapped up in the posturing and there's nothing substantive really beyond you needing to check these boxes, it's not going to be coherent and it's not going to be compelling. But Yellowstone, it seems, is able to create its own universe that just draws people in, sucks people in, and lets them escape and feel like they're living in a fictional world and, you know, want to keep turning the page, so to speak. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, all of this, you know, dedication to kind of incorporating woke ideology into entertainment, at the end of the day, what it leads to is chaos. That's really a ladder that's able to be climbed by smaller production companies that actually put the viewer first. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's kind of like, 
at the end of the day, the viewers want to be catered to. People want to watch things that have been created for the viewer. They want to be entertained. And if bigger production companies, bigger media institutions, whatever it is, are focused more about the press that will get written up about them and the value judgments that will be placed upon them. And Mm -hmm. that's what's driving their content versus what's actually just like quality content, entertaining, um, pleasant to watch. If that's not what's driving the content creation, someone else is going to swoop in and do that. And that's what I think you see with Yellowstone. Like Yellowstone is impossible to watch. I literally pay $3 an episode every single time from iTunes because I just can't get it to work on Paramount. I don't know. I can't do it. But I I do it because it's so good. But I think the fact that you have 14 million people watching the launch of Yellowstone this season and like 2 million watching Succession, but all we do is talk about Succession, it, it just really shows you again how we have completely missed the forest for the trees about what makes a successful show. Yeah, and that's been going on for years, ever since entertainment sort of started to splinter more and more with cable, etc. Um, one of the, this, this is actually a, a very critical moment in my like political uh, awakening was when I realized how few people watched The Office compared to how many people watched like NCIS. It's not even close, and it wasn't yeah. close when The Office was on. It's probably much, much, much closer now because the show's popularity has just exploded with Gen Z. But it's, you know, you you'd think, you can't make this content if you don't know your audience and increasingly Hollywood doesn't know its audience but is still unwilling to accept that and doesn't fully realize it's like how can you correct a blind spot if you don't know where those blind spots are well that's the thing it's exactly what you just said Hollywood continues to cater to an audience that's not its audience but they don't realize it I think that's exactly true of the news media as well I Mm -hmm. think I think, and um, Baya Unger-Sargon has written a, a lot oh, about this. Um, yes, she was just on the show. Yeah, so she talks a lot about how media has become, you know, a lot more of a sort of a less working class industry. And as that's happened, there's been this complete sort of bifurcation between what media thinks its audience is and what they want and what they actually want. Um, and I think you're seeing that with entertainment too, probably arguably for longer than media, But the point is, people used to be able to sort of get out of their own heads and say, okay, maybe I'm not the audience. Maybe there's something else people want. Maybe there's something else that's, you know, someone's going to value. But we've so lost the ability to recognize that there could be multiple perspectives and multiple values. It's so, the moment we're in is so black and white and things have to be this way or you're terrible and they have to be this way or you're an idiot and they have to be this way or, you know, you're evil. And so I think people have really lost the ability to say to themselves, I'm not the audience and the audience, you know, might be worth catering to, but they might want something completely different than what I'm offering. I've really been rethinking shows like Sex in the City recently, especially in light of a BuzzFeed article that quoted actually a 23 year old. Um, and I've talked about this a little bit. She's a 23 year old, according to BuzzFeed anonymous, but a, a victim of sexual assault who was talking to the news outlet and said, you know, HBO really did a number on me. And the BuzzFeed article was about sex positivity sort of falling out of fashion with Gen Z. And she mentioned sex in the city. She mentions girls. And I think maybe it depends on how you're interpreting that. But at the same time, you know, they shaped our culture in ways that um, we can't necessarily control how, especially children who are growing up in that climate, interpret it. At the same time, it's hard to deny the entertainment value of them. So I'm curious just to like what you think about that question 
question and I'm coming to this very open-minded I'm conflicted on it myself um you know what do you think the sort of legacy of sex in the city is well I mean the legacy before and just like that and the legacy now are I think really different (laughs) um because it's you know it's at the end of the day people who watch sex in the city were always rooting for Carrie and Big and if you know he gets killed off it's kind of like I don't know. It sort of ruins the whole show. So um, for me, that's just like a side point, but I don't know how, I don't even know how it would be to rewatch it again. It'd be like rewatching friends, but then you actually find out that in the last season, you know, Rachel dies. Like could, could anyone stomach rewatching it then? I don't think so. Um, But in terms of legacy, look, I think you're asking an interesting question. Um, I personally, I really try as hard as I can. and, And sometimes people are, really crazy and it's impossible, but I generally try as hard as I can to separate, you know, the art from the artist and, and the product from, from its time. And so, you know, you saw this with, with gone with the wind. I mean, people were Mm. up in arms because it, it looked, to be honest, it makes slavery not really look like slavery. It it definitely whitewashes slavery. I mean, you can't, you can't watch it and think that's what slavery was really like. Right. So it's not that I don't agree that Gone with the Wind, you know, takes something that was obviously like a 10 out of 10 on the awful scale and makes it, you know, a lot milder and appropriate for a childhood audience. But that doesn't mean it's not a great film. And that doesn't mean that it's an easy answer, right? It's it's confusing. It's complicated. We have to think through what that means if, let's say, you're introducing a 10-year-old to the civil war and slavery for their first time and their first introduction of what slavery looks like is gone with the wind, then they're not really going to have any idea what slavery was like. And you've kind of, you know, whitewashed and made the whole thing a lot more mild. But on the other hand, you're also probably not going to sort of take your average 10 year old through like the absolute most triggering, most scary dynamics of what slavery was like, what the Holocaust was like. I mean, there are lots of films about World War II that are also like pretty pleasant when compared with the actual realities of being shoved into crematorium. Right. So, you know, I think it's a complicated question, right? I obviously think that as values change and as, as just the way we talk about things change, we can have cultural awakenings where we recognize, you know, certain things that may have been a phenomenon in their time are not actually let's say the educational tools we once thought they were or don't make sense in our current moment for um, educating people the way we want or that they have problematic elements. But I don't think that means you just banish them to the ends of the earth, right? So like I love Gone with the Wind. I think it's a fantastic film. That doesn't mean I'm blind or naive to the things that it gets really wrong and the injustices that it does when it paints slavery. But that's an addendum. So that means you talk about that. It doesn't mean you just banish the film and never watch it again. Have you kept up with uh, Candace Bushnell's life at all? She has a one-woman show actually off Broadway right now. She's the obviously the memoirist who uh, Sex and the City was originally based off of. Yeah, I have not, no. But I would love to see her show. Maybe it's- we should go together. Yes. See, that would be fun. It's such an interesting, uh, she is adamant that, and she wrote another memoir about this, I think two years ago, she's Mm -hmm. adamant that she's very happy right now. 
um, she's divorced and she's dating. Um, and she had a great appearance actually on the Femsplainers podcast when that book came out. Um, but she's adamant that this is, this is happy and this is fulfilling. And she didn't need the so-called like trappings of the traditional American housewife existence. Um, but she also talks about how she gets lonely sometimes. And you know, that anyway, so that's maybe a conversation for another time, but I think her insistence is very interesting. And I guess I'll just last ask you what you think about how sex in the city maybe approached this question of marriage this question of children and how that's i guess aged along with the characters yeah i mean look obviously there are a lot of elements in the show that were not realistic i mean i was a freelance writer for many years and i can (laughs) tell you that my freelance salary never paid for a single pair of manolo blonics let alone (laughs) the entire closet of them um so i think you know all of us uh writer gals definitely were envious of, of Carrie's uh, byline commissions. Um, but look, I think when it comes to women, it's, it's interesting, right? I mean, Carrie obviously doesn't have kids and was always working in a job where, you know, she could kind of dial it up or dial it back down. Samantha, I mean, who knows what she was doing, like had like a crazy job by all accounts, but like definitely, you know, did not have a lot of like at home restrictions, Um, Charlotte really unclear whether she actually worked after that, like initial art gallery stint, um, but definitely seems to have a lot of time to be a happy homemaker. But with Miranda, they actually really did give you a realistic window into, um, I think like the trials and tribulations and guilt that comes into being a working mother. And so you had a lot of moments where Miranda had to choose between either being with her kid or performing at work. And you know, that was an area where I thought the show was able to be realistic in its depiction um, and kind of talked to women viewers who were watching it and probably struggling with those very same issues. Um, so I thought I thought they did well there. But look, I mean, the show at the end of the day, it normalized being single. It normalized being happy single. It normalized having sex outside of, you know, a marriage and and going forth and doing that happily. And I think for women who were sort of of the age of the characters when that was happening, that was probably a very healthy and very needed social moment and piece of progress. And so I think it's weird to watch the show take this really sad turn. I think they've handled it terribly. I think there's just a million reasons why the reboot was botched. Um, And I think like the simplest way to think about it is, I don't know if you saw, but Peloton released this ad. Yes. Um, Okay. So this ad is, it's Mr. Big and it's Allegra. I think her name is, but it's some famous Peloton instructor. And um, Peloton basically does this voiceover where it's like, Writing your Peloton's great for heart health. And just like that, he's alive again. <laughs> and it's like a three-second Peloton spot that was, I don't know, seems to be cobbled together insanely quickly in the last few days, by all accounts, was funnier than the entire first few episodes of the Sex and the City reboot. And to me, that kind of tells you all you need to know about where the show went wrong. Mm. Danielle Greenbaum, always a pleasure to talk to you and to read your work. Emmy-winning producer, Daniela Greenbaum-Davis, also a writer. You can read this particular piece. It's called, and just like that, proves it's a time to put sex in the city. It's time to put sex in the city to bed on The Federalist. Thank you so much for your time, Daniela. Thank you. 
You've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the play.